a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Oh, it's an interesting week, and it's only going to get more interesting. Where do I begin? First of all, welcome. If you are here to revel in wrong think, my friend, you've come to the right place. And it's uh, becoming a very necessary survival skill for people more attached to truth than they are to simple political slogans. So, my goal here is not to tell you what to think. My goal here is to encourage you to think critically and independently, and not only try to make sense of the world around us, but... More importantly, try to make sense of it in a way that you can figure out what you can do, where you're standing right now, to make the world a better place. No, it's probably not going to make headlines. They probably won't throw a Nobel Prize your way, but you will make a difference. And I firmly believe that uh, God doesn't make mistakes. I think he gave every single one of us something that was uniquely ours to fulfill some kind of purpose, some kind of mission. My goal is to encourage you to figure out what that is and get to work on it. Not because, you know, it's, it's all on your shoulders, but because that's where satisfaction really comes from. No matter what's going on in the world, if, if things are falling apart, and right now things are getting pretty chaotic, you know, the, the difficulty level is being dialed up <clears throat> on a pretty regular basis. But if you are living with purpose, Somehow it's easier to move through those events and the twists and turns and challenges and even the hardships. So with that in mind, let's dive headfirst into what's going on. A couple quick things I just wanted to, to point out. I never listened to Sean Hannity. And it's not because I'm just so much better than that. I just, I never am close to a radio when he's on. And I yesterday just happened to be driving around and uh, flipped on the radio. And lo and behold, there was Mr. Hannity holding forth. Now, it's not him so much that I found interesting. It was just that during that brief 15-minute window that I was driving somewhere and happened to catch that portion of his show, I actually heard the live coverage of uh, House Speaker McCarthy being removed from office, the the vote being taken in the House of Representatives that uh, removed him from uh, from being the Speaker of the House. And I have to admit, this is not something that's happened often. And I'm seeing a number of different interpretations. I don't know who to believe. I try not to get caught up in too much of the political psychodrama, but on the one hand, I got to hand it to Representative Matt Gaetz for for standing up and saying, look, McCarthy has not delivered on the things he promised he would do. We got him in there as speaker with the understanding that if he did not deliver, he would be removed from that position. And lo and behold, Gates has delivered on that promise. Now, who comes next? I don't know. I did have a a friend suggest this the other day. He says, if the Republicans had any brains, they'd elect Trump as speaker, thus by law, shielding him from arrest, trial, potential conviction, etc., as he would uh, be in duty in the House of Rep- he'd be doing his duty in the House of Representatives and would be immune. I'm sure that wouldn't pour any gas on the fire now, would it? But uh, I don't know where it goes from here. 
I know there's two other events though that are taking place this week. Just want to mention these in passing, and this is not to you know stir you up or get you otherwise you know concerned, but. Today is the day that uh, apparently there's going to be some kind of a nationwide emergency broadcast test. And I don't know what that's all about. Sometime, uh, I guess just after noon today, at least mountain time, there is going to be some kind of a electronic warning, emergency alert that will be sent out over every cell phone in the country, every TV, every radio. And it's just a test. I think it's called the Nationwide Emergency Alert Test. But it does kind of make you wonder. Even if your phone is set to silent mode, you're going to hear a very loud alarm. And it's meant to attract attention. And these will go off even if devices are set to silent mode. It'll last for about a minute on radio and television. Cell phones should get the alert within a half hour of the test starting. And the test system will broadcast a message that says, this is a test of the National Wireless Emergency Alert System. No action is needed. Now, I like Michael Snyder's take on this. He says, look, does that mean something really bad is going to happen today? And the answer, of course, is probably not. After all, they're telling us this is just a test. Hopefully that's all it is. But it does kind of make you wonder, is there a reason to be conducting this kind of a test? I can't remember something like this happening, at least within my lifetime. Now, keep in mind, I mean, I've, I've worked in radio for uh, coming up on, it'll be 39 years in December. EBS tests, emergency broadcast system tests, were a very regular part of what we had to do as part of our broadcast license. Weekly, we would have to run a test, and there were you know certain hours that you had to run it. Then uh, the emergency activation system took over, and that's more of an automated thing. But I've never seen a national test like this. So it kind of makes you wonder who the, the people who are saying, "Well, you know, we just need to <clears throat> test the system, make sure that it's uh, you know functional." I wonder what it is that they're concerned about. I mean, look, it it could be anything. It could be, you know, major storm, earthquake, something like that. But there's something else that's going on. And this is, I guess, the, the part that concerns me. And that's the fact that Russia this week is actually holding extensive nuclear combat drills. And, and uh, um, they're, they're having a, a massive uh, nationwide nuclear attack exercise. Now, apparently the first one took place yesterday, or at least it was scheduled to take place yesterday. But if that, uh, if that doesn't at least kind of make you perk up a little and go, all right, <clears throat> what's going on here? Look, again, I'm, I'm not trying to push fear. I'm trying to push awareness. And the difference is, you know, fear paralyzes. Fear makes you freeze in place and just, oh, what do we do? Are the bombs going to start falling? I don't think that's a good way to live. In fact, I I agree with C.S. Lewis. If that's our focus of, oh, but, you know, what happens? What's going to happen? We're missing the point. I'm going to paraphrase a commentary that he gave some time ago. But it was along the lines of, look, let's uh, let's say that the nukes start to fall. Okay, worst case scenario, uh uh-oh, here come the intercontinental ballistic missiles. What should they find us doing? And his take was not hunkered down like a bunch of scared sheep, just uh, waiting for, you know, destruction to rain down on us. 
He says, we live in a world where the second you are born, there is a guarantee that you will die. Now, that's not to be morbid, but nobody leaves this world alive. Nobody. Well, almost nobody. (laughs) There's still some questions about Moses and maybe John the Revelator. But um, the bottom line is we, we are born and we are mortal and at some time we will perish, and we don't know how it's going to be, a car accident, heart disease, cancer, you know, whatever. But C.S. Lewis's point was, we should be found, whenever that moment comes, living life as fully and joyously as possible. In other words, uh, I, you know, I, I just can't think of a, of a better way to say it. He said it best, and I'm paraphrasing at worst here, Come to grips with the tur- with the fact that you're you're gonna you're gonna die. We are all going to die at some point. That matter is settled. The fact that you are a mortal being means that uh, your life will end at some point. You're gonna graduate. I like how how that's uh, I like that that way of, of explaining how it works. But instead of worrying about how or when you're going to graduate from this life, focus on how you're living it right now. Focus on what you are doing right now to improve yourself, which, by the way, that's the surest way to improve the world is to improve yourself or at least start with yourself. What are you doing to bring more truth, more love, more beauty into this world? We already have enough anger and fear, so, you know, thanks. We're, <laughs> we're pretty well topped up on, on that. We're, we're quite full, actually. But do you understand what C.S. Lewis was suggesting? Focus on living life. Focus on the good stuff with the understanding that, you know, all of us will face the end at some point. Okay? That's, that's inescapable. So accept it. Embrace it. And then move forward and start living life like it's supposed to be lived with joy and with appreciation for, for what's around us. I don't know about you. But uh, this is my favorite time of year, and I find I, I make time as I go about my day to spend just a little bit of time appreciating what I see around me. I would recommend it, especially if you've been feeling nervous about all the stuff that's going on. I get it. It's, it's crazy. And the news cycle just kind of feeds that craziness. Oh, well, did you hear the other stuff that happened? Okay, hopefully I'm not uh, playing on those fears or, you know, exacerbating them. Focus on bringing good into this world. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, you can check out my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. Each day that I do this show, I publish show notes with links to articles and guests, and I try to keep it as interesting as possible, and yes, I also include some sick memes, just because I know that people occasionally need a good laugh, and sometimes a meme is the best way to communicate truth. Now, I was talking in the last segment about how I don't want to, I don't want to bring more fear, I don't want to bring more anger to the table, but I do want to bring up a topic right now that may very well cause you to... Well, lie awake at night thinking. You ready for this? Here's the question. Is the money in your checking account yours or the bank's? 
Now, this is an article from Jonathan Newman. I found this on the Mises Wire from the Mises Institute. And I, at the risk of angering my friends in the banking industry, I think that this is a topic that every single person, at least those who use money, ought to be thinking about. You have money in your checking account? All right, is it my money? Can I just walk in and say, give me my money? Or does the bank consider that money our money, comrade? Sorry, that's probably not a fair way to say it, but listen to what Jonathan Newman says. He says, when Silicon Valley Bank and other banks failed earlier this year, the debate over the sustainability of fractional reserve banking resurfaced. Under fractional reserve banking, banks keep only a fraction of customers' deposits in reserve. The difference is bank credit, such as government debt, mortgages, business loans, and other kinds of loans. So this practice leaves the bank open to a run in which panicky depositors attempt to withdraw their funds from the bank en masse, but the bank doesn't have the cash on hand. And he actually uses a graph, this is the FRED, F-R-E-D graph, that gives you an ID of the extent of mismatch between deposits and reserves. Now, it's pretty tough to describe, but suffice it to say, it's a pretty dramatic difference in terms of what they say, here's what's on the books versus here's what's actually available in terms of cash if, if people wanted to, you know, cash out. Now, Jonathan Newman says we shouldn't worry about bank runs because the government's here to help. I think he's being facetious, but his point is well taken. In the U.S., the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, or FDIC, insures checking accounts up to $250,000. And the banking system is regulated by a host of agencies, including the Federal Reserve, which also acts as a lender of last resort. Now, these measures are intended to prevent and mitigate bank runs for the benefit of both the banks and their depositors. But he says it should be obvious they only conceal the fundamental problem and disperse the costs. Murray Rothbard was a detractor of fractional reserve banking. He wrote on the changing legal definition of bank deposits, how they originated as warehousing relationships or bailments, but over time came to represent debtor-creditor relationships. Now, Ludwig von Mises also pointed to bank issues of fiduciary media, the uh, proportion of deposits that cannot be redeemed, which artificially lower interest rates as the cause of business cycles. Nevertheless, a faction of Austrian and Austrian-adjacent scholars defend fractional reserve banking, saying that it can not only be sustainable, but it can also be beneficial in maintaining monetary equilibrium. Now, he says, I'm not convinced by this view, but it's worth taking a closer look at one point these scholars often make. They say that clear communication between the bank and its customers would solve the hairy problem of bank customers expecting the money at par on demand. So with an agreement or with such an agreement, fractional reserve free banking opponents, proponents rather, say depositors would know they are effectively creditors to the bank and the bank is therefore a debtor to them. This means that the deposits are technically and legally owned by the bank and that what the depositor has is technically and legally a callable loan to the bank. Clear agreements would mean that depositors understand that there's a chance they won't be able to get their money, actually the bank's money, in this view, at least immediately in the event of a bank failure. Now, of course, central banking and government bank deposit insurance diminish customers' expectation of bank responsibility. 
How much should banks be expected to disclose about the deposit relationship if most of their customers' deposits are guaranteed by the government anyway? So in line with other fractional reserve free banking proponents, George Selgin argues that the modern depositor agreements, the dense legalese most of us skip, already established this transparency. Here's how he puts it. George Selgin says one of the many disingenuous tactics used by preachers of the anti-fractional reserve gospel consists of their saying something like, if banks would only admit that they're borrowing people's money instead of storing it, we wouldn't object. Sounds reasonable, except banks have never done otherwise. One has only to read a standard bank deposit agreement and disclosure form, such as every account owner is given, to see it. So he uses one from Bank of America as an example. Right at the beginning, under the heading Binding Contract, it says, quote, Our deposit relationship with you is that of, a, of debtor and creditor. A debtor is a borrower, and a creditor lends money to a borrower, whose property it becomes. His point is there's nothing ambiguous about this. And Jonathan Newman says he's right. Bank of America does make that disclaimer in its deposit agreement. So he says, I decided to take a closer look at other big banks' fine print to see how standard this language is. And he says, what I found is that it isn't standard and that even when a bank, including Bank of America, does use that language, it's still ambiguous because of other language in the document, especially in regard to the availability of funds. One bank's fine print doesn't even mention the possibility of bank failure and FDIC receivership. <clears throat> so here's what he found. And he goes through a whole list here. Uh, J.P. Morgan Chase does not have debtor-creditor language. Bank of America describes the deposit relationship as that of debtor and creditor, but this language doesn't appear in its online banking service agreement, which only says services may also be affected by your deposit agreement. Wells Fargo does not use the debtor-creditor language to describe its deposit relationship. Like Bank of America, Wells Fargo says account owners have complete control over all the funds in the account. Citibank very clearly defines its relationship with customers. Citibank's relationship with you is debtor and creditor. But they also refer to the customer's balance as available now balance, even though a critical mass of depositors could run to withdraw their funds and find that the money isn't so available. <clears throat> U.S. Bank does not use the debtor-creditor language to describe the relationship, the deposit relationship, that is. In fact, early in the agreement, it refers to the owner's authority of depositors, which includes the power to perform all the transactions available to the account. Now, U.S. Bank also says the customer's funds are available immediately. Available balance means the amount of money that can be withdrawn at a point in time. And finally, PNC does not use debtor-creditor language to describe the deposit relationship. It doesn't even have a section on the possibility of bank failure and the process of FDIC receivership, which is in all the above banks' deposit agreements. So, the point is... Only two of these six major banks have the debtor-creditor language. And the two that do have it introduce ambiguity by promising at-par on-demand availability of funds. So Jonathan Newman says, We're still a long way from clear communication about the status of depositors' money, if we can call it theirs at all. So what do you think we do about that? I mean, I'm, I'm not telling you, hey, if it was me, I'd run right down to the bank and take everything out right now. I'm not encouraging a bank run. 
But I'm going to ask you to consider this, and that is, if that money just exists in electronic form, is it really yours? I know it sounds kind of weird. Maybe it sounds a little bit paranoid, but I believe that uh, really you can claim ownership over what you can actually touch or what you actually control. And if your money isn't something that you can actually touch or control or hold in your hand, well, there's a question as to whether it's really yours. If it just exists as electrons in a computer or somebody's notation on a ledger, you see what I'm getting at? I'm suggesting maybe maybe it's a good idea to have some tangible things in which to hold wealth. Not saying put all your eggs in one basket, but it just might be a good time to have access to things you can actually hold in your hand. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. So I was having this great conversation with my son yesterday about the free market. And look, I, I am not an economist, so it's not like, and I sat there and lectured him all about, uh, you know, the, uh, the free market economy and so forth. But um, he was explaining to me that, uh, well, we have to strike a balance. There has to be a certain amount of government control. Otherwise, greed is going to take over and uh, people will take advantage. Now, I happen to disagree, although I don't consider myself enough of a scholar that I, I don't think I did any justice in trying to explain to him why I really favor no government intervention at all. I think the free market itself is enough to, to offer the corrections that are needed. And in fact, I, you know, frankly, the, the big concern I have is when government gets involved, that's when you stop having a free market. That's when you start to have what's called crony capitalism. And, and what we call capitalism today, I think, could loosely be described, you know, I mean, the, the accurate definition is the laws tend to favor those who have capital. Now, I don't think that's the, the proper definition of capitalism, but it does accurately describe the situation of, of how capitalism exists or what people perceive it to be today. Capitalism itself, free market capitalism is voluntary, meaning government shouldn't be involved because the only thing government can bring that, that the market can't is force and compulsion. And I do have confidence that, uh, that people know enough about their own needs, their own desires, their own incentives that they can make those decisions themselves. But here's, here's where I'm going. When you hear people talk about profit today, it's a very unpopular thing. How dare a business turn a profit? Why, you're just profiting off the backs of labor or profiting off the people. I mean, it was just a couple of weeks ago I saw uh, uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau talking about how the grocery stores are profiting unfairly off the Canadian people. As if, you know, the, the ravages of inflation, which I'm sure are taking place in, in Canada as well as here, aren't to blame at all. It's just those greedy people out there, you know, and, and we've heard this here in the U.S. as well. I think Biden even talked about, you know, these gas station owners, are they're just greedy. They're trying to reap profits off of people who are just struggling to get by. And there's this huge disconnect between the cost of doing business and the cost of operating a business versus, you know, yeah, they're just out there gouging everybody and trying to make a buck. So there's a great article here from Walter Block. This is from the Foundation for Economic Education. 
titled Profits Are Awesome and All Around Us. He talks about how profit gets a lot of hate, but we all benefit from it every day. So when he says profits have a bad press, he says perhaps second to private property, theft according to Bakunin, profits are the devil incarnate in the view of our friends on the left. In the star-studded movie Reds, the hero played by Warren Beatty was asked for his explanation of the cause of pretty much all that was wrong in the world. In response, he uttered a one-word explanation after a long, poignant pause, profits. So according to one anonymous but highly commented upon quote, how is profit not evil when in principle profit means you have charged someone more than what it's actually worth? Now, in the view of Mike Hatch, at the heart of the paradigm through which I viewed business and commerce was this idea of the inherent evil of profit. And then Walter Block says this headline says it all. Even businessmen who favor profits defend them on the grounds that they are small. Chevron CEO defends record profits as modest return over time. So Walter Block says, what is the real story on this crucial aspect of the economy? It is that profits are ubiquitous, pervasive, unavoidable, and that we are all, communists included, guilty not only of profiting, but profiteering, that is, earning excessive profits. Ho, ho, ho! Now here's how he illustrates it. He says, a socialist goes shopping for shoes. He sees the same identical footwear in three different stores, selling respectively for $100, $90, and $80. So which one does he purchase, other things being equal? Go to the head of the class if you said the latter. He's going to purchase the $80 shoes. Now, regarding this purchase, to what extent does he value the shoes? Now, this is a multiple-choice test. The options are $120, and $50. Now, we can eliminate uh, the latter forthwith because that would entail a loss of $30, the exact opposite of profiting. B will not suffice either. Why should anyone, anyone, bestir himself to act in any way, manner, shape, or form given that there is not even the hope or the expectation of profit? That's so contrary to basic human nature shared by all of us, no matter what our position on politics. So the only correct answer must be A, where a profit of $40 can be garnered. But he says profits are far more pervasive than that. They're by no means limited to commercial endeavors such as buying shoes. And I love this example. A woman washes her hands. It takes her three minutes. The soap used costs 10 cents. The water bill adds another nickel. Did she earn a profit? Yes. Necessarily in the ex-ante sense, in other words, when evaluating before the fact. She probably didn't even think about it in these terms, but she contemplated, expected, that she would be better off with clean hands than dirty hands, even taking into account the opportunity costs of soap, water, and time. Now, this is usually true ex-post as well, evaluating after the fact, but not necessarily so. For example, she might have dirtied her hands on a household task right after initially washing them, regretted doing so, and wished she'd waited until afterwards so she didn't have to go through the process twice. Ditto for tying your shoelaces, scratching your nose, or going for a walk. We all not only profit from doing so, but try to arrange matters so that our gains are maximized. And there's another important insight, he says, that we can glean from economics, and that's the greater profits one has earned, the bigger and more important is one's contribution to social well-being. Paperclips are pretty much near perfection as is, given their humble tasks. 
There doesn't seem to be much room for upgrading in them. However, if I can slightly improve these implements, I will indeed earn a profit. However, if I can come up with a cure for cancer, I will make a gargantuan killing. I will be rich beyond the dreams of avarice, assuming the all-loving government allows me to keep much of my earnings. Why the difference? Well, he says, of course, it's because many people value the latter contribution of mine far more than they do the former. So, large profits reflect that I've created significant value for others. So, he says, let's hear a little less denigration of uh, crucially this crucially important element, not only of, uh, of the economy, but also of all of life. I thought that was an interesting take. And definitely, definitely something that uh, casts profits in a much more favorable light. See, I want to see people succeed. I want to see people reaping the benefit. And, and you know, it's, it's so popular on the left to hate on the business owner. Well, they just, they just went into business to make money. Hello. Of course they did. But the only way that they can do it is by actually providing value for people. Well, the workers are the ones who do all the work. They deserve all the profits. Okay, that's fair enough. But did the workers come up with the money? Did they put up the capital and, and risk that capital in order to create the business? In order to purchase the tools of production, the, the raw supplies that will be crafted into whatever it is of value that's being sold? Look, I'm not trying to be pedantic here, but it just seems like so so much of the, the railing against profits and the exploitation of the workers, it just seems very self-serving. And I'm not sure I understand exactly why that is. Other than it's, you know, part of, well, we need uh, socialist control or at least central control. Somebody needs to be making all these plans and workers of the world, aren't you tired of being exploited? I mean, look, you're, you're talking to a guy who only just in the last few years finally decided, you know what, I need to start a business of my own. And granted, it's a one-man show, you know, so it's, it's nothing big, never will be traded on the stock exchange. But I can sure appreciate the immense amount of work that people put into, um, first of all, just conceiving what kind of a business they would like to, to create, and then the, the amount of work that goes into it. Look, not to, to put too fine a point on it, and I'm certainly not touting my own, um, you know, efforts here. But I have the deepest admiration for those, uh, those business owners. They don't just start making bucks right off the, the bat. I mean, the ones who really succeed, the ones who do well, they deserve it. You know why? Because there's no such thing as a 40-hour week. Well, how many hours a week do you have to work if you're going to be a business owner? Those of you who are business owners, you know the answer, right? As many as it takes. And you still will likely be losing money, at least initially, sometimes for the first few years. Why would someone do that? Well, some people just love the challenge. Some people have an idea or a product that they believe, look, this really is providing a benefit for people or for society. I say the more value you bring to the table, the more you deserve to be compensated for it. And there is nothing wrong with that, so hold your head high. If you're making the world a better place and you can make money off it, 
you should be rich. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Okay, let's uh, let's talk for a moment about uh, collecting things. Okay, I'm going to admit it. In some ways, I'm a pack rack, a pack rat, that is. And every so often, when I'm feeling morbidly curious, my wife and I will sit down and we'll watch a show like Hoarders, and then I'm just filled with this fear of, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, that's going to be me. And <laughs> it's, it's horrifying. When you see what, what some people actually go through in terms of you know, how, how they get caught up in collecting things to where they just can't stop. Holy smoke. It's, it's devastating. But having said that, there is one area in which I want to encourage you to, uh, to consider that maybe it's okay. Maybe it's actually all right to, to collect more than you need. And what I'm talking about here is uh, books. Books are a wonderful thing to have, you know, an abundance of. And in particular, Annie Holmquist, writing for her Substack, makes a very strong case that uh, we should have burgeoning bookshelves in every single home. She says a house full of books is a house full of blessings, so don't be afraid to let them pile up. She says a few years ago, another bookshelf made its way into my bedroom. As the ample built-in bookshelf that had already graced the area was starting to acquire a sort of double-stacked look and extra books were finding their way into cupboards and other piles around the room, the purchase definitely qualified as a necessity. The new bookcase alleviated shelf constraints, at least for a while, but she says, I soon found myself buying a third bookcase. Unfortunately, the shelves on that latest edition are now rapidly becoming less empty and it may take some creative thinking to find room for the next bookshelf that's likely to join my fleet down the road. Now, she says, I suppose it's pack rats or book rats like me toward whom Dory Shevlin directed her recent Get Rid of Your Books piece published at Slate. Ms. Shevlin seems to take a Marie Kondo approach to books, arguing they should be read and then shown the door. Now, Annie Holmquist says, well, I somewhat sympathize with uh, Miss Shevlin's desire to reduce clutter and share with others, I believe she minimizes the value of books by advocating for owners to send them out the door as soon as they're read. Books are more valuable than simply a nicely bound shelf decoration. Indeed, they foster a mindset that our culture has lost. And encouraging that mindset by collecting books, both for our children and ourselves, is vital for the preservation of society, something that writings from C.S. Lewis confirm. A young man who wishes to remain a sound atheist cannot be too careful of his reading, Mr. Lewis writes, and surprised by joy, there are traps everywhere. In other words, Annie says, surrounding ourselves with books enables us to expand our horizons and broaden our minds. Now, she says, as a researcher and writer, she's read a number of prominent works over the years, and she could have crossed these works off her list, patting herself on the back that she successfully conquered a certain volume, but she says, instead... I've returned to many of them repeatedly, gleaning new insights as I grow in life experience or encounter new challenges in the world. As Mr. Lewis implies, books challenge our thinking, and the individual who fills his personal library with good books, perusing them regularly, will keep the well of the mind fresh with sound wisdom, preparing him for the fight and the battle of ideas that seems to escalate daily. Oh, that's a beautiful turn of phrase. 
She also talks about how books hold fond memories. And in a letter to Arthur Greaves, C.S. Lewis wrote, There is something awfully nice about reading a book again with all the half-conscious memories it brings back. Noting that a particular book reminded him of a walk that he and his friend Arthur Greaves had once taken, because I was reading that book then. Annie Holmquist says, I know a similar feeling. The rocky beaches of Lake Superior remind me of Jane Eyre, where I first began getting into that classic work. Picking up the story of Holly and Ivy reminds me of the childhood Christmas my mom and I stayed up late reading it by the Christmas tree. Other books, some with tear-stained pages and much underlining, remind me of difficult times. But they also cause me to rejoice in remembering the truths they delivered in times of emotional need. Thus, preserving books and studying and storing them rather carefully in our home libraries helps us to remember the past while also helping us to mark time and chart our spiritual, mental, physical, and emotional growth in life. She is so dead on here. She also explains how books help us savor beauty. It is the, uni- or the unliterary man who reads books only once or once only, rather, said C.S. Lewis, in uh, other of other worlds. We do not enjoy a story fully at first reading, he continued, not till the curiosity, the sheer narrative lust, has been given its sop and laid asleep, are we at leisure to savor the real beauties. Annie Holmquist says, I concur. L.M. Montgomery's Anne of Green Gables series is one collection of books she says that, that she's reread or savored numerous times. And such rereading promotes a familiarity, allowing me to call on the series for quotes, provide humorous anecdotes to throw into conversations, and even discover nuggets of wisdom I initially overlooked. She says, my Anne volumes aren't fancy, in fact, they're rather dog-eared, but their ready availability continues to provide a reference and insight into life that I wouldn't have if I'd neglected savoring them and instead approached them with a one-and-done mentality. By the way, I find this to be absolutely true. The best books are the ones that you can go back to and read again and suddenly notice, hey, I understand this differently than when I read it before. Why? Well, because you gained life experience. By the way, this is one of the reasons why, in spite of what our mothers told us, we should be writing in books. I mean, I was assuming that you own it, okay? If you check it out from the library, don't do that. But if you own the book, you should be making annotations. You should be underlining asking questions, jotting down observations. Because someday, your kids, or maybe your children's children, will be reading those books too. And when they see what uh, sparked thoughts in you, or what sparked questions, or your annotations, your commentaries, it'll be like they're sitting there reading that book with you. I know this sounds like kind of a weird thing, or at least to some people, it'd be like, okay, what's, what's the purpose of that? The purpose is it keeps you a part of their life and allows them to to garner insights from your experience as well as getting their own insights. Maybe it's something you have to experience to fully appreciate, but some of the most cherished volumes that I have in my, my own burgeoning bookshelves are those that I inherited from my grandma, uh, from my dear old mentor, Abe, you know, and from other friends who, who made notes. And when I sit down and read those books, it's like I'm right there with that loved one again. It's hard to describe again unless, you, unless you've experienced it. All right, finally, Annie talks about how books transcend age. 
And here she quotes C.S. Lewis from On Three Ways of Writing for Children. Lewis said, I need not remind such an audience as this, that the neat sorting out of books into age groups so dear to publishers has only a very sketchy relation with the habits of any real readers. Those of us who are blamed when old for reading childish books were blamed when children were reading books too old. Uh, For us, no reader worth his salt trots along in obedience to a timetable. So true. Now, Annie Holmquist says, unfortunately, this neat sorting out of books into age groups that Mr. Lewis condemns is exactly what you get when books go out the door as soon as they're read. Yet such a mindset inhibits interaction between the generations, preventing a legacy from being passed along from the older to the younger through books. Keeping them open, however, opens a door of keeping them rather opens a door of wisdom and maturity for the young while providing youth and hope for the old. Now, just so you understand, she's not saying we should never get rid of books. After all, there's some truly trashy literature out there that really doesn't deserve our time or space. Giving all of our books a type of Marie Kondo treatment, however, causes us to miss out on some of life's finest blessings. She says one day if we descend into a totalitarian society where books and the truths they contain are taboo or hard to find, we'll wish that we'd heeded the call to preserve books in our own home libraries. By the way, on that last point, this is one of the reasons why I refuse to get rid of certain books. It's because there, there's revisionism going on. There's revisionism that, uh, that is just as Orwellian as anything that you could find in 1984. I want original books that, uh, that are unaltered and that actually stay true to the author's original text. And having hard copies, that's a way to do it. Plus, it's just fun. I, I don't know. I, I still have cases of books that, that are still uh, boxed up from my last move a couple of years ago that, uh, that still have yet to be opened and put back on the shelves. And, you know, part of it's because I, I'm lacking room. Those shelves are looking pretty full. But when I'm unpacking these books and I start to look at them, I can't help but start to turn pages and revisit some of my favorite passages. Okay, I admit it. I'm a bibliophile. I love books. And I'm encouraging you to discover that love too and to build your own library just on the off chance that one day uh, it becomes a very valuable fountain of knowledge for you and for those who'll follow in your footsteps. This is The Brian Hyde Show.